0: There's no question about the fact that motive is necessary in life. We have to be motivated. We are motivated by one thing or another to do one thing or another, whatever that may be. It's important that we have the proper motives for what we do, and especially when it comes to the work of the Lord and every aspect of the work of the Lord for that matter. And that includes our our giving. We're blessed at White Oak with, obviously, some very generous givers for the size congregation that White Oak is and the average contribution that we, we enjoy. It is certainly evident that we have those who take very seriously giving of their means. And they should. We all should. And it is a subject that, despite the fact that we have many, no doubt, generous givers, It's a subject that we dare not ignore because we are charged as preachers to preach the whole counsel of God, and the whole counsel of God includes giving. It's been some time since we've looked at this subject, as I recall, and I'd like for us to look at it this morning as we begin a new year, really, we haven't gotten very far into that year, and to see specifically what should motivate us and to look at a motive that perhaps we have not thought about as much as other motives for giving of our means. And that is Christ's motive for giving. Christ had a great deal to say about giving as he lived among men and did his work for the Father upon this earth. And giving money is at times a hard thing for the flesh. And so it does require the mightiest of motives to move us from selfishness to selflessness. And there are various motives for giving that we could cite, and certainly uh, many of them would be uh, valid motives. Duty, for example. We all have a duty to give of our means, and that is a motive that is strongly worked, and it is certainly legitimate. It is our duty to give. Stewardship is another motive for giving. When we recognize that we are stewards of everything that we have. Uh, We can talk about owning things, but really when it's all said and done, more specifically, God still owns it all, doesn't he? We're mere stewards of it. And we are to be found faithful as stewards, as Paul pointed out, as he wrote to the Corinthians. And that's a legitimate motive, love as a motive obviously, is the highest of all motives. Love is the highest of all motives for giving. It's the highest of all motives for all that we do in the Christian life. But love may be somewhat unsteady in the younger Christian especially. You know, the Bible has a great deal to say about growing in various Christian attributes, including love. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians on one occasion and said, I pray that you may increase and abound in love, increase and abound in love, grow in love. And so love as a motive for giving may be a little more unsteady in the younger Christian until that individual grows in love as well as growing in all the other Christian graces. So let me ask then, is there a motive that appeals powerfully to all, a motive that's biblical, a motive that is attractive to Christians as they are and as they will be for as long as they live? The answer is yes. And this morning I want the Lord to give us this motive as we look at what he taught about a very important subject and he had a great deal to say about it, about the subject of giving as he conducted his earthly ministry. Very simply, Christ used the investment motive. He used the investment motive. And he used it in the Sermon on the Mount at Matthew six nineteen and 20. When he said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consume and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the investment motive forgiving. You know, self-interest is not a sin. It is not a sin to have self-interest. I can prove that. The first and great commandment the Lord said is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind. The second liken to it is that, what, you love your neighbor as what? As yourself. That's self-interest. You are to love yourself. The Lord said you are to love yourself. You are to have, you are to manifest a healthy self-love. Self-interest is not sin. Selfishness is, and that is a counterfeit of self-interest. Have we thought about the fact that every step in the plan of salvation, every step in the plan of salvation is a step of self-interest. It has to be. It's, an, it's a step of self-interest. The first time the gospel was preached on Pentecost Day, Peter's sermon, with many other words, he testified and exhorted saying, Save yourselves from this perverse generation. Have enough self-interest in your immortal soul to save that immortal soul. That is healthy self-interest. And as many as received His Word, gladly received it, were baptized. And there were added to them that day about 3,000 souls. Christ's financial advice was based on the truth that the final test of all values is permanence. How permanent is what you value? That's the final test of all values, is whether or not that value is permanent. You know dew drops. Dew drops are as beautiful as diamonds, but they don't last. The Lord, as He lived among men, showed us the way to eternal worth. And the Sermon on the Mount points the way to permanency. And the conclusion of this sermon, and we've studied it not that long ago, tells us that the one who hears and does is the one who will stand the storms. Remember the latter part of that sermon in Matthew 7, 24 through 27? Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now in the first part of that great sermon, in chapter 5, the righteousness that lasts forever is revealed to us by the Savior. What is that righteousness that will last forever? It is inward righteousness. It is God-like righteousness. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. God-like righteousness. And then in chapter 6, in which our text is found, chapter 6 shows the religious service that will have its reward from God. What is it? It's service that's done for him and not for the praise of men. The Constitution of Christianity, as the Sermon on the Mount is called, has a financial section. Matthew six, nineteen beginning as we have cited. That's the financial section of the Constitution of Christianity, the Sermon on the Mount. Do not lay up. Why? But lay up. Why? Do not lay up treasures on earth. Why? But lay up treasures in heaven. Why? Because it's the only money you will ever see again. It's the only investment you will ever see again. It's certain. How uncertain is the stock market? Huh? <laughs> Look at this week. Look at this week i was told that some individuals may have lost billions of dollars just in the downturn of the market this week christ used the investment method motive but he told us to invest in that which is a sure thing that which is permanent the bible has a great deal to say about rewards about rewards in heaven. Think with me for a moment about 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and the passage that is abused by some to teach something that it does not in any way, shape, form, or fashion teach. But that's 1 Corinthians 3, beginning with verse 11. Paul there writes, "...for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ." Fire. What's he talking about? He is talking about your efforts as a Christian to convert others to Christ. And he is saying that when you make that effort and you are successful in bringing precious souls into the fold of God, some of them will last and some of them will not. Each man's work, or convert is the context here clearly, will become clear for the day, what day? Judgment? No. The day here is the day of trial. The fiery trials in this life will determine whether or not your convert is made of the kind of material that will endure that fiery trial and come through it stronger, or whether or not he or she will be consumed by that fiery trial. And if your convert is made of wood, hay, straw, etc., that burns up. But precious metal is only refined and made purer and stronger. That's his point here. Now what if your work is burned? What if those you lead to Christ do not endure and they fall away? Well, you'll suffer loss. You'll lose the added reward of seeing them approved of God and Christ in the judgment. But you yourself will be saved as long as you remain faithful. That's his point. You know, some have tried to pervert this passage to teach that You can live your life religiously and be as wrong as wrong can be all your life as long as you're sincere in what you believe and then at the judgment when you discover you were wrong all along you'll still be saved because you were sincere. This passage does not touch top, side, nor bottom of that kind of teaching. It simply talks about a person's converts and the kind of material of which they are made. And some will endure and some will not. But the point is, there will be added reward for those who bring others to Christ and ultimately see them remain faithful unto death and stand beside them, as it were, in the judgment scene and hear those words issued to them by the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. That's going to be added reward for your efforts if you'll make those efforts. What did Paul say about the Thessalonians? He made this very point when he wrote to them in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 19 and 20. Listen to it. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you? Where, Paul? In the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming. For you are our glory and joy. Paul said, if you will endure and you make it, since I had a part in converting you, you are going to be my glory and my joy when I hear you approved of God and Christ in the judgment. And so the point is, God is a rewarder. God rewards. And Jesus held out to us incentives based upon the investment motive and the rewards that follow. What does Hebrews eleven six say about God? Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a what? A rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Reward is an incentive, obviously, the investment motive. And the whole of Christ's teaching reveals this motive for giving. Do you realize that one-tenth of the gospel according to Matthew deals with true riches? Half of the parables emphasize the relationship of the material life to the spiritual. Matthew chapter 13 deals with the deceitfulness of riches. Time and time again we encounter in Scripture the Lord or those inspired by the Holy Spirit dealing with this matter. It is absolutely crucial. And we need to appreciate that riches are relative. They are not what they claim to be. They are of the earth. Notice the Lord's encounter with the rich young ruler. Matthew's account. The Lord told him after he had inquired the young man, what must I do to inherit eternal life? At that time he told him to keep the law because the law of Moses was still in effect. He said, I've kept it from my youth up. What do I still lack? Great attitude. And the Lord said, knowing his heart, You go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure where? In heaven. And then he said, Come follow me. And the young man went away sorrowful. Jesus told this man, Turn your property into eternal securities and don't get caught up or remain caught up in the material. Then we come to the rich man in Luke 12 who couldn't figure out what he was going to do. He had so much produce, his barns wouldn't hold it. And then it occurred to him, clever, I'll just tear down my barns and build bigger barns. A bright idea as to keep what he had. But God intervened. And God said, fool, fool, This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Luke 12, verse 20. Then verse 21, he says this. Here's his application. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not, notice it, rich toward God. That's a powerful phrase. Rich toward God. You see, a man is rich in the direction of his treasures. He's rich in the direction of his treasures. You go along with your treasure. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus said it in Matthew 6, 21. A man can be rich toward God. How exciting that prospect ought to be. That I can be rich toward God. Man can have investments with the creator of the universe. Another part of Christ's teaching on this matter of the material is found in Luke 16. Remember the unjust steward there who realized he was about to be put out of his stewardship? And so he devised a plan where he went to the debtors of his master and said, What do you owe? And they tell him a figure, Well, I owe a hundred Right sit down right there and write eighty, and on and on he went. the Lord didn't commend the man for his deceitfulness, but he was just simply talking about preparation and so luke sixteen nine he says this, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous Mammon, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous Mammon that when you fail they may receive you into An everlasting home. When is it that we're going to fail here? It's when we die. In other words, when it's over. When we fail here, we need to make sure our preparation has been sufficient for us to be received into the everlasting home of the soul. And our giving has a tremendous part to play in that. So says the Lord. Jesus teaches us here, that we're to use our money to bless others and to glorify God. And in the end, listen to it, you will find that it has been transmuted, your money has, into personalities who will welcome you into the heavenly abiding places. How's that possible? Because What we give may enable missionaries on the field to do the work of converting souls. And without those contributions, that work would go begging, if not become impossible to do. And when that money is given and those souls are reached because that money has been given and those souls live their lives faithfully and they reach the heavenly shore and in that judgment scene, you will find that what you gave has been transmuted into a personality who says, thank you for giving as you did so that I could hear the gospel and so that I could be here approved of God in the judgment. That's how what we give can be transmuted into heavenly personalities that will welcome us into heavenly abiding places. You see, you cannot, you cannot lose what you faithfully use as a good steward of God. That's an impossibility. You cannot lose what you faithfully use as a faithful steward of God. Now, hear a final word on this from the throne of heaven itself. It comes from Revelation 2, verse 9. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. To whom were these words written? They were written to the church at Smyrna. They are the Lord's words through John to the church at Smyrna. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. You are poor, but you are rich. Jesus made it clear to them. He knew of their poverty, but he told them they were rich. The word from the heavenly banker was, look up, Smyrna, you're not poor. Look up, Smyrna, you are rich. What we lose for Christ is gain. Giving is an investment in the bank of heaven and the bank of heaven will never break. You've heard the term in recent times about institutions being too big to fail. There's not an institution on this earth that is too big to fail. The only institution that is too big to fail is the bank of heaven and it's not on this earth. Those at Smyrna, poor but rich. And that's reminiscent of an illustration that I have had for some time. don't remember if I've ever shared it with you here. But if I have, it's worth sharing again. This article was entitled The Rich Family in Our Church. And it comes from a man by the name of Eddie Ogan. It was published in the Gospel News back in 2001. And Eddie Ogan writes, I'll never forget one Sunday in 1946. I was 14, my little sister Osie, 12, and my older sister, Darlene, 16. We lived at home with our mother, and the four of us knew what it was to do without many things. My dad had died five years before, leaving mom with seven school kids to raise and no money. By 1946, my older sisters were married, and my brothers had left home. A month before, the preacher announced that a special offering would be taken to help a poor family. He asked everyone to save and give sacrificially. When we got home, we talked about what we could do. We decided to buy 50 pounds of potatoes and live on them for a month. This would allow us to save $20 of our grocery money for the offering. Then we thought that if we kept our electric lights turned out as much as possible and didn't listen to the radio, we'd save money on that month's electric bill. Darlene got as many house and yard cleaning jobs as possible, and both of us babysat for everyone we could. For 15 cents, we could buy enough cotton loops to make three potholders to sell for a dollar. We made $10 on potholders. That month was one of the best of our lives. Every day, we counted the money to see how much we had saved. At night, we'd sit in the dark and talk about how the poor family was going to enjoy having the money the church would give them. We had about 80 people in the church so we figured that whatever money we had to give, the offering would surely be 20 times that much. After all, every Sunday, the preacher had reminded everyone to save for the sacrificial offering. The day before the big day, O.C. and I walked to the grocery store and got the manager to give us three crisp $20 bills and one $10 bill for all our change. We ran all the way home to show mom and Darlene. We had never had so much money. That night we were so excited we could hardly sleep, we could hardly wait to get to church. When the offering was taken we were sitting on the second row from the front. Mom put in the ten dollar bill and each of the girls put in a twenty. As we walked home after services we sang all the way. At lunch mom had a surprise for us. She had bought a dozen eggs and we had, boiled, we had boiled eggs with fried potatoes. Late that afternoon, the minister drove up in his car. Mom went to the door, talked with him for a moment, then came back with an envelope in her hand. We asked what it was, but she didn't say a word. She opened the envelope and out fell a bunch of money. There were three crisp $20 bills, one $10 bill, and 17 ones. Mom put the money back in the envelope. We didn't talk, just sat and stared at the floor. We had gone from feeling like millionaires to feeling like poor white trash. On Saturday, Mom asked us what we wanted to do with the money. What did poor people do with money? We didn't know. We'd never known we were poor. We didn't want to go back Sunday, but Mom said we had to. Although it was sunny, we didn't talk. Mom started to sing, but no one joined in. And she sang only one verse. We had a missionary who talked about how churches in Africa made buildings out of sun-dried bricks, but they needed money to buy roofs. He said a $100 would put a roof on a church building. The minister said, Can't we all sacrifice to help these poor people? We looked at each other. And smiled for the first time in a week. Mom reached into her purse and pulled out the envelope. She passed it to Darlene. Darlene gave it to me, and I handed it to Osi. Osi put it in the offering. When the offering was counted, the minister announced that it was a little over a $100. The missionary was excited. He hadn't expected such a large offering from a small church. He said, you must have some rich people in this church. Suddenly it struck us. We had given $87 of that little over a 100 We were the rich family in the church. From that day on, I've never been poor again. I know I am rich in Jesus. What a story. The Lord does not want us to be paupers in eternity because we've been spendthrifts here on earth. And that's why it's important for us to take so seriously what the Lord himself obviously saw as a serious matter, and that is being good stewards of that which with, with which we have been so bountifully and beautifully blessed. The greatest blessing, obviously, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you have not obeyed it, we plead with you to do that this very morning. Expressing your faith in Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing him to be the Christ, and then being buried with him in baptism for the remission of your sins. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But understand the commitment that is required. And understand how important it will be for you to rise from that watery grave with a commitment to walk in newness of life and to understand the importance of being a steward, a good steward of everything that God has blessed you with. If you need to come home to your first love as one who's wandered from the truth and has done so in a way that has brought reproach publicly upon the church, return in that same way. Restore your influence. Most importantly, restore your soul. As we stand to sing, will you come?